Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Today, we want to welcome Richard Jones to our show. Rich is an attorney at Sullivan and Worcester in Boston, where he's been specializing in state and local tax for more than two decades. His work includes helping taxpayers prevail in key decisions in Massachusetts, so much so that he was recognized as a Law 360 MVP for some of the cases we'll talk about today. Thanks, Rich, for being with us today. We really appreciate your time. Pleasure to be here. I'm a fan of this podcast. <laughs> All right. And for those, um, Alex Corzian, the member a uh, member of our Saltivation team, will be with us today. Um, so it will be me and Alex talking with Rich, and we're really looking forward to talking some cases. So, Rich, state and local tax we've seen and kind of had experiences talking with other people does not usually get a lot of play in law school or, you know, just kind of higher education. How did you land in state and local tax and kind of what motivates you as a tax attorney? Well, um, you know, before I even got into state and local tax, um, there was just tax generally was not the path I thought I was headed on. Uh, a lot of my colleagues in our tax department here at Sullivan and Worcester um, really kind of are tax people and they knew it early on. Um, and, but I, um, I was kind of the more common breed in law school. I think I was headed towards a career in, as a trial attorney that wasn't involving tax. Um, I probably had kind of that normal aversion to it. It seemed foreign to me. There was a, uh, a musical review that did a spin of the meatloaf song, and the name of the song they did was I'd Do Anything for Law, But I Won't Take Tax. Um, <laughs> and, and it went on to talk about how terrified we were of it. And, I took one class and, and it, it was very interesting. Uh, but then I started working in New York City at a commercial litigation firm for three years and I was looking to change jobs. And um, I, a friend of mine in Boston at PricewaterhouseCoopers was doing state and local tax exclusively. And I was chatting with him. He started sending me articles that he was working on. And while it never occurred to me to look in that direction before I was reading those articles. And I said, "You, this is like early onset of economic nexus principles. And I, and I said, this is constitutional law. I mean, it's due process, commerce clause. It's kind of interesting. I don't think anyone got to do that kind of thing. And he's explained that it's not just academic. It is really part of uh, the daily practice. And I read more and then I ended up meeting the people he worked with and uh, was coached a little bit, uh, a fellow, and Joe Donovan was the head of PwC's Northeast practice. And I happened to say things that I knew he'd be interested in. So he hired me and I just shifted gears. And I kind of started from scratch, not knowing much about tax, let alone salt. But it was the salt that appeared, appealed to me first. And so I was really green, right? Uh, someone would put up a structure like my first day with a corporation with a box and a triangle for the LLC. You got triangles, you got rectangles, you got the triangle in a rectangle and all of those mean different things and yeah. show up on a tax return differently. And, and I told him, I don't used. know what those things mean. <laughs> those, you know, this was early on. So I, I knew I had to get up to speed fast. Unfortunately, I really loved it. I mean, I, uh, what motivates me is the second part is, um, so I went from PwC for three years where I really 
got a lot of good technical training, worked with some great people, Joe Donovan, John Miroff, among others. And I came here to Sullivan and Worcester in 2003, where I could do the litigation. So it's a nice blend of doing those two things. But the things that motivates me in a nutshell, are really, I do love the issues. I like talking about them, whether it's economic nexus or extraterritorial values, distortion, you know, when is something subject to a sales tax? Can it be sourced? Um, there is just a lot of gray areas and some aggressive state taxing authorities, maybe some aggressive taxpayers. But that combination makes for a lot of controversy and a lot of unsettled issues and sometimes they're constitutional issues. So I like that. And the other thing I like probably is more in the nature of lawyering in any field, but you know, just the opportunity to get a correct answer to maybe right a wrong, and that wrong might be not so much of an injustice, but uh, a, a, an unfair interpretation of a statute. And sometimes it is an injustice or an injustice. And so, you know, sometimes my pro bono cases have uh, lingered with me as to some of the most gratifying things that I've done. But, uh, you know, that combination of just really interesting issues and the opportunity to uh, maybe have an effect on policies that should be changed in the state of Massachusetts or elsewhere through litigation, that kind of thing. Those are the things that motivate me. It's funny listening to you speak. I mean, I'm, my, my experience coming up was a little different. I, I never, uh, I was never at a law firm. I went into uh, CPA land directly. Uh, but as, you know, as a young wet behind the ear attorney, that's what drew me to it. It was that, you know, the constitutional issues, the due process commerce clause, it, it, that's the stuff I salivate over. Um, still to this day, you know, 20 years later. Um, but I think SALT draws a lot of attorneys and, and highly educated masters of tax and, you know, and the, these individuals who who typically are just a little more comfortable in that uncertainty, right? Because we, we do have a lot of gray area in this field. Um, and that gray area is what gives us the opportunity to correct some of those injustices, right? Yeah. Um, sometimes it's sometimes there's just a lack of guidance, and you have this opportunity to to craft the the solution or the resolution through advocacy. And um, and it's uh, you know when somebody thinks of a CPA firm, you know, kind of like your experience of Price Waterhouse Coopers or, or or my career, you don't typically think of that, but there is that opportunity, um, and certainly on the law on the law firm side too. Yeah. yeah, no, it's it's a wonderful opportunity to kind of, um, and it's not maybe the most common blend. Uh, you've had guests where you, you see people that, you know, really excel in both the tax technical expertise and the interest in litigating and fighting the fight. And and those are two very different skill sets. I, I, I love doing both. And, you know, I'm not the only one, but it's still not the common direction for people that are interested in, in tax issues. And so the courtroom stuff, you know, is is not a, um, it doesn't take a back seat. You know, they're both equally important. One of my mentors, Bill Hampkin, who passed away a few years ago, but he had been, he was really one of the first lawyers doing state and local tax cases 20 years before I got involved. And he hired me here at Sullivan Worcester. But one of the things he would say is, um, I rarely feel righteous indignation but i often express it <laughs> I, I tend to feel it more than he does I, I actually get into these cases so i will feel it um you know especially as you develop your case and you realize maybe you have one where you really it's 
completely all right, and maybe the department's policy should change and so forth. But uh, I always like that uh, that point of view. Well, kind of with that, let's maybe start because it seems like Massachusetts. You may have been busy. Massachusetts was busy talking tax, pushing some things out there. So maybe let's start with Oracle USA Inc. What was the issue there, and how does it kind of potentially speak to a broader trend? And I think while we're going to talk specifically about Massachusetts court cases, want to then kind of think about as we talk through them some of the national impacts of those. But for now, let's start with Oracle. Sure. Yeah, happy to. Yeah, Oracle is one of there's about seven cases that are pretty, I think, important in Massachusetts, but. Oracle is one of four over the last two, two plus years that were decided at the state's highest court and, and affected important tax policy, you know, the Supreme Judicial Court. Um, and that's unusual to have four cases uh, on state tax policy get to that level. So Oracle was a case involving the sale of software uh, by, it was Oracle and Microsoft, to a company that was headquartered in Massachusetts. But had employees everywhere. And so, you know, this is just one of the many questions that arise and are not entirely settled on issues involving tax and technology. When we have a sales tax, generally, traditionally, it's always on tangible personal property. Sourcing isn't that hard. You have a, a, a an item, a widget, and it is the sales tax is due to the state where the plate thing is sold. If it's in the store, if it's delivered to a customer, we know it. Uh, and it's one place. But software, to make software taxable, even though it's not tangible, many states like Massachusetts have changed the definition of tangible personal property to say things that are tangible personal property plus software. We're just calling it. It's a fiction. Fine. Okay. But what happens then is that now you have something that can be used simultaneously and exists simultaneously in many different states at the exact same time. That doesn't happen with the widgets. So you have a new question. The Massachusetts legislature had some foresight uh, around 2005 when they changed the definition uh, to include software for taxable uh, tangible personal property. And they said, the commissioner can also make rules about how to apportion the tax. So you got a company based in Massachusetts. When Oracle or Microsoft or a software vendor bills them, and these are very big bills when they for large companies buy these software products, the sales tax is just 100% to Massachusetts because that's where the bill to address is. And what should happen is it should be taxed to the state, to the extent the thing sold, the software, is actually used in Massachusetts. And a good way to do that is apportion it based on the users or the customers located uh, in Massachusetts. So if the buyer has 50% of its workforce in Massachusetts and 50% everywhere else, it says actually 50%. Okay, so um, two things that are important in this case that I think are influential elsewhere is just the notion that uh, sales tax in these situations should be apportioned. That's the right answer, but that's also a very unusual answer, a unusual a concept, because the idea of apportionment is really only thought about in the terms of an income tax and never the sales tax. And I think that thinking has to change. And so this SJC upheld 
the ability to apportion sales tax based on where it's going to be used, only to the extent of use in Massachusetts. And a good way to do that was based on employees. The real controversy in the case came up because Massachusetts said, uh, it put a lot of restrictions on this ability. And they said, we will not let you apportion. We won't ever let you seek an abatement to apportion it correctly. If you didn't apportion and give us a multi-point you know, multi of use certificate, an MPU exemption, so if you don't do that at the time of the sale or by the time the initial return is due, you lose your right to apportion. And so our argument was that that's taking away a statutory right. Um, and not only to apportion, but also to abate your taxes if you have over-reported it. By statute, you have uh, you know, three years from the filing date to do that. Um, and the, so the apportionment issue is important. But the second issue is that the court came down hard on the Department of Revenue for its argument, uh, which was that we can restrict your rights. The legislature gave and it conferred on us, the Department of Revenue, the right to decide whether to let taxpayers apportion and we have decided, and so we can make any restrictions we want. That was incorrect, and this is part of our argument. That's not what the legislature conferred. The statutory language is a little confusing, but it could never do that. Because while the Department of Revenue has the power to implement tax policy consistent with the statute, it cannot make tax policy. And it can't be conferred the right to make tax policy. What was the right to make tax policy? In this case, it was whether. The question of whether sales tax can be apportioned or not, that cannot be the Department of Revenue's job. We went into the Massachusetts Constitution to, to hammer that out. But what that does in Massachusetts, but elsewhere, is it, 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 the language is strong enough that it's an important reminder of the authorities of state taxing um, revenue agencies. So, you know, there were multiple you know, incidents or examples where uh, their authority seems to be uh, unchecked in, in terms of interpreting the statute being inconsistent or saying that we have the right to decide these things. So I think it was important that way. It's important guidance on apportioning sales tax for software sales. And secondly, on, on, the, um, on the ability or the parameters of the Commissioner of Revenue's authority. Well, congratulations on that, on that win. That's, that's, that's huge. Um, you know, it, I think, uh, so Massachusetts has an MPU, uh, Minnesota, where I sit, has an MPU as well. And, and the Department of Revenue here has issued guidance uh, identical to what you referenced, where a MPU has to be claimed at the time of sale. Uh, to my knowledge, I don't believe that has been litigated here yet. But, but you know, uh, this Oracle case certainly gives me a, a little hope that maybe if it was litigated in Minnesota, it would maybe land the same way. I hope so. You know what the problem with that rule is? The MPU, um, all that is, is an exemption certificate. What are exemption certificates? They are not statutory, uh, you know, final orders. They are shiftings of burdens of proof. If you have an MPU, you've, the Department of Revenue, if that's submitted, We'll assume that things were properly apportioned or things were properly exempt. Um, and they could still look at it. They could still flip it, but they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt more often than not. If you don't have an MPU or you don't have an exemption certificate, all right, you have to show them 
that you're exempt or you're entitled to a portion. Uh, but they, it shouldn't foreclose your ability to do that because all it is is, is, is shifting a burden of proof. The other thing that's unusual about that, what I can respect is that if the MPU does two things, the MPU also transfers the obligation to report the tax from the vendor to the customer. Now, if you were to say you can't do that shift if it wasn't done by the time the initial tax report return is filed, that's fair. That's not talking about whether the tax is exempt or properly apportioned or not. It's about whose obligation it is. And you've got to file something. And if the vendor doesn't file anything, it better have an MPU. So that I get. But it can't take away your right to apportion. I'd love to see it litigated in Minnesota because I and hopefully yeah. come up with the same result. Yeah. And, you know, the, the whole concept of MPU is just is, is fascinating because, you know, uh, with with the select few states that do have this burden shifting process with, through a certificate, typically, um, I think this answer is a little bit clearer, but there's a host of other states that don't have a formal certificate, right? Yeah. But through, through you know, if you read the, the, the standard sourcing provisions that are based on, you know, use language, as you alluded to before, uh, it, you know, the argument could be made that they, you could still apportion there, right? They just don't have this MPU mechanism to to document it. So, the the right to apportion, uh, and I I use those terms habitually. That's an income tax term, um, but that ability to apportion the, the the sales tax should still exist. Again, it's just. Does it shift the burden? Well, likely not, right? Without that cert, um, and the mechanics of, of of all that becomes incredibly complex. So it's just it's it's a very interesting mechanism to think through and 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 to work through both uh, legally, conceptually, academically, but also practically. I completely agree. And you know what? I love the question. What if a state has a you know normal sales tax, normal use tax? Because we're really talking about a use tax here. And no language whatsoever about apportioning or a right to apportionment. At least in Massachusetts, we could glob onto some language that seemed to suggest it, even if it was unclear. Well, what if the state doesn't say you have a right to apportion sales on software? You still have a use tax statute. And what, what do you need for a use tax to apply? You need to have a sale. It needs to be uh, actually used. And in, I think in most states, that has to be intended to be used in the state, purchased for use, those three things. But the middle one, the, was it actually used? You really can't impose a tax uh, on something if it wasn't used there. And so even if you don't have specific apportionment statutes, I think there's a good argument that 100% tax just because the headquarters of the company is there isn't correct because it's not reflective of use and you have to think differently when you have non-tangible property that is subject to a sales tax. It is, uh, and, and so then you're right, and then you have these really interesting questions. How do you apportion? States should, if, if we can get to that point, should states should make that easy enough, you know, based on headcount, based on, you know, other things. But I'd love to see that issue come up um, in states that don't have anything about uh, apportionment, just the yeah. interpretation of the use tax statute. Yeah, and that's a great point about you know the required documentation because even if you can get comfortable you know statutorily in, in in one of those states, then you know you have to ask yourself, all right, well, how do I paper this up, right? 
you know, and to use New York as an example, and I, I don't remember the the level of guidance that was issued. It was a number of years ago. I want to say maybe it was some sort of, maybe it was an ALJ, but there was some specific guidance on the kind of documentation that would be acceptable in New York because New York doesn't have a certificate nor a burden shifting provision, right? But you can still claim the MPU. It just doesn't shift the burden. So, you know, the, the, the scenario that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But they were very specific, the ALJ. And again, I, forgive me if I'm misquoting the, the level of authority, but it was uh, very specific that, you know, there had to be head headcount percentages listed out by jurisdiction. So, it, you know, it wouldn't have been enough to just have, you know, the New York percentage listed. They wanted it to tie out to 100, right? They needed everything listed. So what level of documentation is enough in each one of these states is just, we have no idea, right? Right. So if you even get there, how do you cover yourself? How do you, you know, how do you protect your client? That's right. And I am finding my, you know, after the Oracle decision, the floodgates opened for everyone filing abatement claims that didn't think they could before. And we've seen shifting sands in terms of the degree in, in which the department will be satisfied with the apportionment numbers. I can't say I am happy with the way the sands have been shifting. Um, Sometimes you can find out exactly what percentage of your employee headcount use the software and where they are because the software has that technology. And sometimes you can't. But you know what's more important than who actually used it under the law? Who was it purchased for? If it was purchased for anybody in the company to use, and ended up being used by a smaller portion because we know not everybody needs it, but we don't know who's going to need it and who uses it from year one year or one month to the next could change. So you don't buy a license. You don't buy the same number of licenses that as employees. You have 30,000 employees. You buy 30,000 licenses. You don't need that many. But then you might have the department saying, well, I can't let you apportion based on headcount. I need to know exactly who used it. That's something we're dealing with, which I don't, I don't think is reasonable when the question really has to be who which who was it purchased for. Now, if it was purchased and really only useful to one department within the company, then you don't use worldwide population. You probably use the population of that department wherever they sit. That makes sense. But companies shouldn't have to be forced to litigate to prove their apportionment uh, when uh, we don't have an exact headcount because the software tracking doesn't do that. Well, and something we've seen generally in audits that auditors are amenable, right? When you're kind of on the hook for, you know, proving, right? It's mostly shipped or billed to, right? Where'd you send your bill? And that's where we're talking, right? But what we have to be cautious of and what we warn our clients on of, all right, well, if you're going to use an MPU argument for sourcing out, right, you also have the contrary of those you know, bill twos that are out, but could have users in. So it's like, you can't just, you know, use that language to go out. When do you really want to open up, right? Oracle, for example, right? They have an office in Colorado, California, right? Just kind of picking on them from a company. Let's say they have users in Massachusetts, but a bill to Colorado, like you just got to be careful of, right? Who are your customers and does the outward customer, right, potentially, or where you didn't send that bill, potentially have a presence in that state 
that you're not charging on or you don't have a certificate for that you could be kind of brought into your pool. Yeah. It's not a one-way street. No. That's right. And, and that's, <laughs> you know, that sounds like a, a compliance or audit nightmare or headache or difficult, but not unfair, right? Right. Uh, you know, it just depends on every state's law, right? Um, yeah. You know, uh, but what they can't, so that, that seems right. But what doesn't seem right is the department saying to you, I, I know you want to apportion, and I have your apportionment numbers, but for the percentage of apportionment that will go to another state, like New York or something, show me you paid tax to New York. Right. No, I don't have to do that because that's not part of the law. And New York's law is going to be different than Massachusetts, and every state's law is different, and that's not part of the equation. Um, so I get the I get your point, Meredith. Uh, I can see a state saying, well, you, you do owe tax uh, to the extent you have users here, uh, but the bill to address or the headquarters of the company was somewhere else. Um, but, you know, but that's where I draw the line. And I've seen that question asked, and I, I don't see it asked uh, as often now. Maybe they've moved past it. You know, that question, show us, if you want a portion, show us you paid tax to the other states. You know, for the reasons I said. We, we don't know that taxes do in the other states. Uh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it doesn't change what the tax is in Massachusetts. Right. We, I mean, we, you know, again, kind of uh, jumping a little bit to a different tax type and a different scenario, but we see the same question being asked for uh, 86272, public law 86272 issues as well, you know, for proof or right to apportion issues, kind of using the terminology I said before, prove, you know, prove that you, you are taxable elsewhere, prove that you paid the tax. And not all states have that statutory requirement. Right. See, it, I can see it coming up in a credits question, right? You mm-hmm. know, uh, you're taxing me, but I already paid tax somewhere else. Every state uh, allows a credit if they want to tax a use of something in the state, but sales tax or use tax has been paid elsewhere. Then, mm-hmm. then you have to show it. But it shouldn't affect apportionment questions by by their very nature apportionment is different than a credit system so then kind of sticking with some kind of sales tax cases u.s auto holdings kind of struck down cookie nexus and kind of denied the state the ability to retroactively apply wayfair why was this significant and what can we expect from that uh I mean, it, it's it's a great case. It, it put like the final stake in the heart of, of this concept of quirky nexus, right? Which is a a next. So here's how Massachusetts has applied it, and uh, is this pre Wayfair? Massachusetts said, and it wasn't able to tax internet vendors that had no physical presence in Massachusetts, and it put out a regulation. There's some history to it, but I'll, I'll cut to the, what they did in 2017, and they said all you internet vendors that aren't present here in Massachusetts, but you have a sufficient amount of sales here. We're all going to subject you to a sales and use tax collection obligation. You have nexus here. You have nexus here. Why? Just because invariably you have physical presence here. And you have physical presence here because your customers are using your websites. And when they do, or when they download your app, they are cookies. And those cookies from your website are stored on the Massachusetts customer or user's devices, their computers or their phones. And that's enough physical presence to satisfy Quill. 
There was another theory too. And, you know, right off the bat, that struck me as, and many, as outrageous. And it, uh, the Department of Revenue didn't call it cookie nexus, but everyone else did. <laughs> they didn't love that term, uh, but I, I think it fit. Uh, so finally, you know, Wayfair comes out, and but then the question in U.S. auto is, pre-Wayfair, the cookie nexus regulation still made this taxable. Uh, and is that permissible or not? And I'm so grateful for this Supreme Judicial Court. We're happy with the Oracle case. I wasn't involved with U.S. auto, uh, but, you know, they just took uh, a reasoned, thoughtful approach. And so did the appellate tax board in that case. That was the trial level court. And finally declaring that just because you, the Department of Revenue, say that's physical presence, it isn't. You know, one of the questions at oral argument from one of the justices is, you know, why is it that you say that that constitutes sufficient physical presence to create a uh, taxable nexus with the state? Are you saying it's the electrons? Really? And that kind of question, you know, there wasn't much of an answer to that. But physical presence means something physical. I mean, I have a lot of problems. Obviously, I have cookies, tangible personal property in the state, like your inventory in the state that creates nexus. In Quill, a handful of floppy disks, that wasn't enough. But you could at least hold those floppy disks. You could see them, you could feel them, you could weigh them. Uh, internet cookies, you could have a billion of them, and you still can't see them, you can't hold them, you can't, they don't weigh anything. They're, they're not tangible. And um, so you know, it was just important for, because the concept had been kicking around in Massachusetts and other states. It was, it was important for them to put an end uh, to the idea that that is physical presence under Quill. The court said it's not. And then the Department Massachusetts also argued that, okay, even if you don't like this cookie nexus theory and this cookie nexus reg, we have Wayfair. And you, Wayfair, we could apply Wayfair retroactively. And that, there, there was some reason to think that uh, in that Wayfair, the Supreme Court said, they didn't just say physical presence was in 2018. They said physical, they didn't just say physical presence isn't going to be, to be the standard anymore. They said it was never right to be a standard for Nexus. And so people got worried about it being applied retroactively. What happened in this case was it, it looks like the Supreme Court denied the ability for anyone to apply Wayfair retroactively. That's not exactly what happened. What they said is we really don't have to get into that. They, they didn't say it explicitly, but that's what they did. They, they looked at the regulation Massachusetts wanted to apply. Prior uh, to Wayfair, the only authority Massachusetts could use to claim Nexus was this regulation. And this regulation was founded, the Cookie Nexus regulation was based on Quill. It said, we are applying a Quill physical presence standard. And because the cookies aren't physical presence, that's the end of the story. Um, you, Massachusetts, your statutes, your rules, your laws didn't permit you to assert nexus on Wayfair's principles, even if constitutionally it might have been permissible. So we don't have to go there. Yeah. But I, I think the idea of electrons or Internet cookies being considered physical, it has applications in other areas of state tax, um, not just nexus, but, you know, how to categorize things for sourcing and other principles. You know, another thing, these cookies, the reason they, under DOR's theory that they would be physical presence 
in Massachusetts or wherever the customer is has his device or computer is because the vendor, the software, the website company owns property located in the state, the cookie. That presumes that the internet vendor owns those cookies and is storing them here, but it doesn't. If it did, could I delete the cookie? Could I have any control over the cookies around my device? I, I can't destroy someone else's property if it doesn't belong to me. It belongs, if it doesn't, but it does, it does belong. It is, those cookies were not property of the website. I, that didn't come up, but I, I just, I, I could never get past that part of it. Um, of course, it's not physical. If it is physical, it's not substantial enough. And it's not even the property of the website company. So all of those things kind of just offended common sense. And I'm just pleased mm-hmm. that the uh, court came down the way they did. And hopefully that's the end of the concept of cookie access. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. You should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented.